is up, everybody? Welcome to The Stack. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And on The Stack, we talk about a bunch of comics that have come out this week. Kick it off December, of course, with a holiday favorite. Batman uh. Santa Claus, Silent Night, number one from DC Comics. Written by Jeff Parker, art by Michelle Banditti. This is a in-canon story that shows that Santa Claus was one of the mentors that Batman trained with when he went to all over the world. Uh, it is a four-issue series that's rolling out over four weeks from DC. I got to tell you, I was very excited about the idea of this because it's such a ludicrous co concept. Jeff Parker yeah. is so good with this sort of thing. Um, and... Honestly, I don't think it disappointed Michelle Bandini's art in particular. I was kind of blown away by it. Feels like right in line with an Ivan Rice or one of those other top tier yeah. DC comics artists. This is very fun. I was very happy. I agree. It is fun. It's very strange to be like, yeah, Batman was trained by Santa. It's like, what? What what do you this <laughs> and everyone in the comic is saying it's so straight faced and it's like, oh, Santa's here. <laughs> let's fight with santa and so it's sort of it's very funny in that way and straight faced is many versions of this comic would make that the joke and this comic refuses that mm -hmm. it's not quite as extreme but it reminded me a little bit of the klaus comic that grant morrison did a couple yeah. of years back where it was again that like very jacked up santa claus battle santa and all the mythology is very much Oh, yeah, this is Old North mythology. We're not dealing with, like, Ho-Ho, Coca-Cola, Santa Claus. This is the fighting Santa Claus. And in this book, they're fighting vampires with one tooth and teaming up with Zatanna. So there is humor in there. Don't get yeah. us wrong. Like, it's a goofy comic book, particularly Damien Wayne, Damien Wayne plays with the concept quite a bit. But I like this. The one thing that I was hoping for this issue that I didn't get, that I hope they do by the end, is I feel like the only reason for doing this concept is to explain why Batman is all over the place all the time at the same time. And that's because he trained mm. the Santa Claus. I want to see that joke. <laughs> that's all. That's really funny. To, uh, to, yeah, because I want to know. So, hey, real quick, Damien <laughs> asking, hey, real quick, Dad, what skills did you pick up from all Saint Nick over here? Um, cause they don't say it's right. just like, but it's also just crazy. Like there's so much like self-seriousness around Batman's training stuff. Like Batman begins the movie and all the stuff in the comics continuity to throw this in there and keep the same tone is wild. Let's want to talk about Thunderbolts. Number one from Marvel written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly art by Geraldo Borges. This is Picking up after the recent Captain America run that Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly did, where Bucky finished the Century game as the Revolution. He has won. He has beaten the secret cabal that was running the entirety of society, the all of Earth, for an entire century, if not more. And now he is building up a team that uh, straight up is setting up the upcoming movie for Marvel Studios but they have a big mission here, which they have decided they're going to shut down the biggest threats of the Marvel Universe, starting with the Red Skull. Um, I will say, without getting too much into spoilers, we can get into spoilers, I guess. I was worried this was going to be a very typical, like, 
we're going to kill the Red Skull. And then it drags on for six issues and you don't really get any. You don't quite get him. You don't quite get him. Uh, Folks, they got him. They got him. They They got him. him. Well, that's what like, it's crazy to see a series with the heroes we like, Bucky, Winter Soldier among them, who always does like, sort of shoot guns and kill people. Mm-hmm. But this is, there's some uh, aspects that some might call straight up murder in this. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that's uh, bracing. I will say I really liked, uh, there's a reveal in the middle here that I thought of, of a person joining the team mm-hmm. that was like, oh, that's cool. And I was like, oh, of course, I should not have been surprised by this. That is an inevitable situation in this comic. So I hope it's not so inevitable, inevitability driven uh, mm-hmm. going forward. Since there's, I do like the art. I do like the the vibe of this comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, very aggressive though. It is very aggressive. I agree with you on it's skirting the line between hero and villain here in terms of what they're doing, though I don't think you could fault anybody for saying, hey, let's kill the Red Skull uh, straight up. Yeah. Hitler stand-in, if there ever was one in comic books. I also, I will say, pairing this with Outsiders over in DC, Mm. Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly taking some big swings with what they can do in a superhero universe, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I agree with that, and it is, you know, for a book that is meant to tie into a movie, it's bending the Thunderbolts comic concept quite a bit, I feel like, into mm-hmm. something that it feels like what the movie is going to be. But they do a good job of just sort of being like getting us on board and just sort of brushing it all into what they want it to be. They're great storytellers, and this is fun. And it is like the the last page sort of tease I mm-hmm. thought was appropriately scary. It's just like you said, I, like we don't want we don't want the red the red skull. We're not on the red skull side, but they're like they just kill a dude who isn't the red skull. <laughs> and I was like, oh, or he's like a red yeah, skull. Yeah, like, it's the red skull's continuity is so complicated because he's been resurrected yes. so many times at this point. If they're going to simplify it, and that's the point here, that's good. I will say on the note that you were saying, this is not thunderbolts this is thunderbolts marvel studios thunderbolts is what they're setting up here thunderbolts to me is some sort of team that has a twist like a villainous twist to it in some way that's based on the first title but that's something that's played out in the best runs on this series here i guess because they're killing people they're thunderbolts but in a very similar way had to how we talked about the outsiders book and it was like eh, i don't know why they're called outsiders here this is not outsiders yeah. this is also especially not when the outsiders book is literally like we're actually a different book yeah we're see that coming? it's like oh okay cool yeah <laughs> yes uh but this is it, it's fine it's good uh, they're taking again taking some big swings with some good art very curious to see how this pans out i want to see a reverse thunderbolt a team of heroes that are villains Wait, oh, heroes who are, oh, I can't wrap my Masquerading as villains. Yes, there we go. Okay, let's make it happen. Time Traveler's Tales, number one from Dark Horse Comics, written by Carl Jacobs, written by, uh, created by Carl Jacobs, written by Dave Scheidt, art by Kelly and Nicole Matthews. This is following, I guess, a time traveler that falls into different dimensions and time periods here they fall into a sort of animal farm situation i guess kind of yeah Um, sort of 
I was very surprised about this book. I enjoyed it. I thought this was a good all ages tale. I don't know if this is time travel so much as dimensional travel. Well, there's a lot of things where I was like, I don't know what this book is. This felt like a story. It felt like wandering around someone's Animal Crossing island for like <laughs> 10 minutes. Uh-huh. And being like, all right, problem solved. So like, I don't know. And I don't know there's a source material web series uh, mm. that this is based on. So maybe you sort of have to know that to understand exactly what the stakes are of this. Because this definitely felt like uh, the first couple minutes of a video game or role playing game where you're just sort of dropped in. It's like, oh, this in this place, there are animals. Bye. So I, I, I don't quite know. I wouldn't go into this cold if you don't know the source material. Yeah, I did. Again, I think this is a very solid all ages book. I think the art definitely leads into that. There's some very cheeky jokes throughout this that I thought were very fun. So this works as a story, but to your point, I'm not quite sure what the concept of the book is yet. And that's something that I want out of a number one. Yeah. Let's move on to, as we always do, our Titans Beast World. We do always do this. Yes. Uh, uh, Section? I don't know. Block? Block. There we go. That's The Beast. Welcome to the Beast beast Block. Beast Block. We are going to talk about Titans Beast World Tour Metropolis number one from DC Comics, written by Nicole Maines and Steve Orlando, Dan Jurgens, Zipporah Smith, and Joshua Williamson. Art by Fico Asio, Anthony Marquez, with Joe Prado and Wade Von Grawbadger and Edwin Galman. And then there's also Titans Beast World Tour Waller Rising number one from DC Comics, written by Chuck Brown, art by Karen Grant. I want to throw something out right at the top here. The continuity of how these books work is yes. biznonkers to me because th- what were you going to say? I was going to say, it's, it, that was my big issue with this too because the different stories within each issue here are like, this takes place between uh, Titans, uh, Beast World number two, and it's like the next one is in number three. And I'm like, what? None, none of those books are now. <laughs> I went to the internet, if you can believe it. This is the first time I've what? ever gone to the internet. I know, that place. I know. And I was like, does Titans Beast World 2 come out this week? And I just didn't know about it. And it doesn't. Does not. It, yeah. yeah. And it's not that there's necessarily spoilers. It's mostly like, why are you releasing this now? I don't understand what's happening here. I don't have a problem with the stories in both of these. I think there's some interesting ideas going on. Yeah. But it's such an impediment to throw something in where you're like, here's an ongoing conflict in the DC universe that's going to change everything. You don't know what's going to happen yet, but this takes place two issues from now. Hey, let me throw out. I don't think you need that editor's note to reference any of these things. Like, because that's again where I'm like, it's like an unforced error to be like, just so you know, you don't know something that is happening here. Or you just, in case you don't know, we're releasing this book early because we didn't have another Beast World book coming out this week is what I feel like is happening here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like, it it I agree, it just was strange. So criticisms aside, uh, shouts to uh, our guy, Anthony Marquez. Mm-hmm. Uh, who former uh, former booth man for the um, the Bibbo and Turtle Boy uh, short, which was super fun, very fun, yeah, very fun. Loved Anthony's art in this story. The big Jimmy Olsen kaiju style turtle Jimmy Olsen, very fun. 
I know you love Bibbo, so I was very love happy. Love Bibbo. And this was this was just a like classic comic story. It mm-hmm. felt like it could be, it had it was drawing maybe from the little Tintin, a uh, little like just like it felt like just a great old old school comic book story. And I, yeah. I love seeing that. And I really like the Dreamer story as well. This is one that similar to what we were saying earlier, I think it's kind of frustrating that it was tied to Beast World because it felt like most of it, I was like, why is this Beast World? Oh, three quarters of the way through, Livewire shows up and she's some sort of dinosaur Livewire or something like that. But most of it is a good story of Dreamer and Cole Mains yeah. and Steve Lando supporting her has been a huge proponent of this character. They're positing some interesting things that I would love to see how they pan out going forward. Um, but I don't know. It, it was very similar to me with the Lazarus planet one shots where I read them and I was like, these are good stories. What does this have to do with anything that's going on right now? Yeah. Well, and this dreamer spun out of Lazarus planet, mm-hmm. uh, famously. And I, I wish we could get some sort of dreamer story in another book or something. So we could actually take a breath and focus on this character rather than have it be a very aggressively propulsive part of this larger event, which it feels like in the main Beast World story, we don't really know that these uh, Garo uh, spores are turning people into beasts that hasn't been revealed yet, mm-hmm. except in this book, it's what's happening to everyone. So yeah, it, it's just a strange publishing thing to tip it in that way, Right? That hasn't been revealed. That wasn't revealed in Beast World. It was the last page. The Garo spores went into people's mouths. And I think it was just Black Adam turned into a lion Black Adam. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. So I I just mean, like, to have it be such a driver for this. Yeah, this needs to be, like, after issue two is when we get these issues. Because it's too much. And to talk about the Waller Rising thing that, like... I don't even know if it had to do with Beast World at all. It, it didn't really. And I will say, I liked the elements of this story. Like, I like this uh, this character. Is it Deadeye? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I, I was mean, cool. Let's be, let's be straight up about this. This is basically, and I think this is totally laudable. I think this is a positive thing. This is Chuck Brown being like, hey, let's take all the characters of African descent or people of color in the DC universe, jam them together into a team. It's pretty cool. This, yeah. this is a cool mashup of characters that I'm super into. It reminded me in a weird way a lot of... Uh, the minor threats miniseries that's going on now, the alternates, uh, where you take yeah. a bunch of supposedly like B or C list characters and jab them into an alternate universe where they have to fight a battle. But like, it's also spinning off of the whole Dr. Hate thing in a very weird way, where Dr. Hate is the character, mystery character, who has attacked Garo, made him turn into a evil star character was infected the whole DC universe. And this issue, they're like, oh, he went against Amanda Waller and is doing his own thing, which feels very quick to me and very off. Well, especially like they capture Dr. Hate. And I'm just like, you set up Dr. Hate in this first issue as this like big threat, very powerful. And this, he seems like just a guy who was wearing a hat. 
essentially. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what is this? And you get too much of his plan here, I think, to to understand you're missing too many pieces to know exactly what this means, but you get too much of what he's doing to not be spoiling other parts of this event. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's why like, we keep harping on the publishing of this, and that it just feels like a, an absolute mistake, just a weird mistake yeah. in the way they've done this. But on the positive side, I think Deadeye is a super interesting character, someone who is related to Amanda Waller, can undercut her in great ways. She... He, he seems like the only character that she needs ever, mm-hmm. just based on this issue. So, like, that's a great place. I don't understand the kingdom. Dr. Haight is teleporting people for some reason. He has to move people. This is so tied up in plot. We have nothing. We have no knowledge about yeah. I like the art was interesting. I, I didn't two, love the these art. Two feel messy. I felt like the, yeah, uh, the art in this, I will say, I inherently liked it, but it felt a little packed it was hard to hold on to some of the action in particular. I think what we're saying here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but both of these issues, good issues on their own with some interesting writing and characterization throughout, but in terms of the span of the Beast World event, you had Titans Beast World number one, which felt like this big kickoff to this event, and they're immediately stumbling in week two. Yeah, especially when I thought the first... It's a bummer. The first Beast World issue I thought was great, interesting, emotional in good ways. So this event does seem fun. It just feels like they messed it up a little bit. We'll see what happens. We'll obviously be continuing to follow this. Let's move on to the Century number one from Marvel, written by Jason Liu, art by Luigi Zagaria. Now, I have been a huge fan of the Century series. They've delved very heavily into mental health and various aspects of that. Every writer, artist team has taken their own take on the Century. Century died, and the concept here is Century's powers, or at least different parts of the Century powers, start coming back in regular people. Um, what do you think about this, Justin? I like this. It feels like sort of half of the concept is laid mm-hmm. out uh, just to get into it a little bit. It, it seems, it seems as though centuries powers have been on his death. They split up a little bit and found other people somehow I would argue. It feels like the century and the voids powers on the century's death were split and different people are getting mishmashes of them. So there's like some people who are evil getting powers, some people who are uh, not so evil. Um, I like the mix of characters here. I like the way the mystery is is unfolded. I I would have liked to see sort of the second issue. Maybe this should have been mm. a double double issue just to know where we're going a little bit harder. But it's a cool idea. But to your point about what the century is and getting into like mental health or the dichotomy of uh, human experience. Uh, I wish we got a little bit more of that flavor because that does feel absolutely inherent to what the century is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something, if I remember correctly, that was Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee did the first series, and they really set the tone for that for every series going forward. That's not what we're getting here. And I, I don't fault the team necessarily, this is a much straightforward, more straightforward superhero take on the century. It feels a little bit, do you remember the, um, oh my gosh, the the movie, The One, where it was, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the actor, but basically he, it's basically like a Highlander situation, but with the multiverse where he needs to kill people and take their power and he becomes stronger every time. Yeah. Um, 
And also this... Highlander is that. <laughs> yeah, it's a so Highlander situation sense. like Highlander. Um so that's basically what we're getting here. Like Jet Li. Jet Li, yes, thank you. Oh my god, I don't know why I totally blanked on him. But this feels like like I was saying, a more straightforward superhero book. And what I yeah. want out of the century is something more psychologically complicated. I just don't know if we're going to get that here, but we'll see. It, it, it potentially, it does feel like there is some interesting underlying idea. It feels like there are memories associated with how the mm -hmm. powers are presenting. And it does feel like one of the characters is dealing with this change in their lives poorly. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I do think maybe we'll get there, but again, it just feels like we're getting half of the concept here. Yeah. We'll see. Orcs, the gift number one from Kaboom by Christine Larson. This is, I believe, the final series in the All Ages Orcs ongoing series. Here we are seeing the Orcs teaming up with slash challenging their ultimate enemy. Imagine if the Hobbits had to team up with Sauron and you kind of got the idea here. I really like the art in this book. I have a little bit of a hard time holding on to the story in orcs. Uh, but how do you feel about it, Justin? Yeah, it does feel a little like the narrative just is a little wobbly at times, especially when this one is hinged on as a slight spoiler, like just psychedelia mm -hmm. uh, in general in a, in a way where I was like, and I weirdly have been the three things that happened to me today were weirdly like, and then they took a bunch of mushrooms. So like, Was I don't know. Was one of them you took a bunch of mushrooms? Yes, that's why I'm tripping balls right now. But oh, still, so have a react sick. Uh, still, that's why this Batman Santa Claus thing feels so right on. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Because they're like, they're the same guy. Have you ever thought about that? They're the same guy. They both solve mysteries. That's one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Santa's parents were killed in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> canonically uh -huh. right no no it's i know. To you bring don't need all to those i've read yeah. all of santa's comic books yeah exactly uh but anyway so getting back to this this it, it, yeah it's a little bit of a, a sort of wobbly story but i i like the art i the characters are fun and, and interesting i do wonder where it goes from here where it, it sort of ends with like and everyone woke up the next day feeling a little hungover problems and i was like oh what, what happens next <laughs> yeah i i want to like this book because again i think the art is very charming but again the story a little tough uh that said there's an interesting conflict here i like the idea of them having to team up with the greatest enemy and i like the big wolf at the end so there you go oh, love a big wolf love a big wolf Subgenre number two from Dark Horse Comics, written by Matt Kidd, art by Wilfredo Torres. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I was looking ahead here and I was like, hmm, uh, hard to hold on to story. Oh, wait, I like this one, though. Um, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, which I understand is a little unfair. The idea here is we've got this detective who is investigating a mystery about IP and rights in the future. He has gotten sucked back into a fairy Conan jam up type story. We don't know exactly what's going on in classic Matt Kid fashion, but man, I love this so much. I am so into this. Like the idea of deconstructing somebody who is essentially 
realizing he is the central character in an ongoing story and what does that mean what does that mean for the rights and who controls him i think is really fascinating i'm very much enjoying this series well and i like we we talk often about so much it's almost a cliche to be like this is a story about telling stories and we've done that like neil gaiman that has been his thing for uh like his whole career in some ways and this sort of is a very modern version of that and it's a little more tongue-in-cheek it feels like that postmodern take on it and injecting ip and the fact that so much of our genre storytelling is the same story with just a different genre laid onto it the genres that we get sort of at play here are magic noir hard sci-fi adventure and low fantasy and that's really fun it has meta elements to it but it's all written with a nice wink that i think is really great classic kint wink and I think we're gonna uh, just get more of that. It feels like the humor is like sort of the high uh, high concept of all of this. Would you say there's a little bit of a kint hint going on here? Mm, yeah, kint hint. Kint hint, you're gonna enjoy this comic if you buy it. Batman 140 from DC Comics, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Jorge Jimenez and Mike Hawthorne. We got some big stuff going down in this issue this is the final issue of the bind bomb storyline as batman fights a war on two fronts one front is physically he's fighting the joker potentially going to kill him this time on the mind front he's been taken over by the batman of zur and r and spoilers here but is fighting all of the batmans of zur and r thrown throughout the multiverse that he gathered as he traveled through the multiverse in previous arcs of Shib Zdarsky's book. Um, and at the end here, we get a absolutely wild twist where again, massive spoilers, but Batman loses his fight with the Batmans of Zur and R, specifically the Frank Miller Batman of Zur and R and wakes up, doesn't know what happened to the Joker and Batman of Zuron R has escaped from his body and is now in the robot body of Failsafe, the robot that Batman of Zuron R created in order to destroy Batman if he went too far. Uh, this is Biznockers, is what I would say. Yeah, it's like really doubling down and layering down on deep Batman continuity paired with Chip Zdarsky's like new ideas that he's injecting into it it feels like sort of uh grant morrison-esque would be the comparison taking grant stuff that grant really got into and now using that to inject them into new grant type characters here so it, it's fun i it, it's not like a fun read it's sort of a little bit of a, a lift when you're reading it but i still like it you know mm -hmm. I, it's, this sort of crystallized for me what you were saying, the Grant Morrison of it all. Obviously, you're right. Like, he's the guy who really dug into the Batman of Zuron R and brought him back in his run. I, I think there was something in the, I want to say the 60s or 70s that, Tracks. as Grant Morrison always does, brings back, like, I'm going to take this crazy thing and then make it work in modern continuity. I over the course of the time we've been doing all of these podcasts have talked a lot about how 
writers will try to prick, pick up on Grant Morrison things and utterly fail. Like, I think the best example yeah. of that is Zorn, where Zorn is one of the best twists in comic book history. And then people yeah. trying to actually make Zorn a real thing was like, no, no, no. Just just don't touch it. Let Zorn go. <laughs> Let we don't want to go back and have Zorn be just a regular guy who's like, I'm not Magneto now. Yeah. And, I was like, and there's okay. two of me, and we're monks or whatever. Yeah. That just doesn't work. Chip Zdarsky doing this Batman Zuran R stuff is, I think, the first time that I've seen somebody pick up on a Grant Morrison concept and it work, honestly. Yeah. Um, well, because I, I think what Chip Chip does is heighten the grant of it. Like, yeah. takes it as like, oh, yeah, let's go. Let's have all of them come here. And let's put all, them into like, All of the stuff. It's the sort of thing you're reading. Like, it's – we've talked a lot on our Marvel podcast or DC podcast about multiverse stuff. Here, there we have Jorge Menes drawing – Michael Keaton, Batman of Zuranar, Frank Miller, Batman of Zuranar, Adam West, Batman of Zuranar, and every iteration a- animated series that you could imagine. Yeah. And like, it should feel Easter eggy, but it's not because it's there in service of the story and yeah. what it does to Bruce Wayne. And this is one of the most successful runs i've read in my lifetime where and i've said this before but where it feels like oh no batman might lose like yeah he, he legitimately loses in this issue and in a real way that makes sense where i don't know that i've ever seen that before and it's kind of a well he's he simultaneously is losing but also lost like mm-hmm. He already lost. He lost at the beginning of this. Like when it when the it was Chip's first arc when Failsafe was introduced. Yeah, he lost. Failsafe wrecked him like unabashedly, <laughs> and now it's just like, oh, it's you think it's gonna get better? Now you're double. You have two enemies in one body. So I, I like that. I like all of that, and it, it's also where distanced from Bruce the the character. Like we don't. We're never in his head. We just watch him get his ass kicked over and over again. So I'm curious if it, that's a purposeful choice mm-hmm. and Chip is then going to spin it back where we get in his head and it's like, all right, now I got to really fight my way out of this because mm-hmm. that's cool. And there's a backup here we should talk about too. Yes. Wait, what was the backup story? Because I'm totally blanking on it. Vandal Savage. Oh, uh, that's right. Yes. Just like hanging out in Gotham, which I, I'm really interested in this. I like the idea of a Batman versus Vandal Savage. Vandal Savage also is living in Wayne Manor, already winning. There's a reveal at the end of this backup that puts Vandal Savage front and center, which I think could be a cool Well, let's talk about this a second, because one of the things that I think works really well in the front story is Chip is starting to bring all of his arcs together. Like we were talking about, he's bringing together the Falsafe thing, the Batman Zero and R thing, the multiverse thing where he's falling through that. And so it feels like this is building this crescendo. crescendo. Meanwhile, the backup story, Vandal Savage is clearly going to end up being the commissioner of Gotham City working with the Court of Owls. Like they don't explicitly state that, but that's 100% what's happening here. So like... But hating them, he hates them. He hates them. What are we building to here? Like, and and I, and I say that positively. Like, I love the idea of being in a place where you're taking all of these elements of Batman mythology, and I do not know where we're going. 
That's great. Well, it it reminds me of Chip's recent run on Daredevil, where it was just really savage. It was savage <laughs> to the character. And it feels like he's sort of doing that here. And, you know, you don't get that very mm-hmm. often. There's always a little bit of love in Batman because everyone wants to write Batman. But Chip's like, I'll kill this guy. You don't even know. <laughs> yes. Uh, so very exciting. Great art throughout. Invincible Iron Man number 13 from Marvel, written by Jerry Dugan, art by Juan Fergari. We are continuing to follow Iron Man as he is married to Emma Frost. And here they're trying to build up their Mysterium reserves so they can fight back against Orcus. Similar to the Batman thing, I love how down Iron Man is in this series. Like, yes. I think you've used this phrase before, but they're really, him and Emma Frost, they're so on their back legs. I love this pairing. I love the big, like, how are we going to get out of this one? How are we going to fight back against Orcus? It's not time yet. And then it's going to be so satisfying when they eventually do. This is the romance of our time. (laughs) And it's not even, they're not fully, like, romantic. Like, they're married and there's a lot of flirting happening, but... I love this. I want this to be a an ongoing title where they like do some stuff, they like fight some people, they're building stuff, but then they just dance. Like let's let's let these there's a line in here where White Queen is like, I'm a, a sapiosexual, a, someone who's uh turned on by intellect. And I, I'm a sapiosexual for these two mm-hmm. people dating. Wait, I have a question for you. So they go off planet here. To try to find some more mysterious. Yes, they are I know so exactly what you're going to ask. Why is she still wearing her wig? <laughs> uh, well, why is she? I would say the opposite. Should they get off planet? And she's like, all right, let's go do this thing. She's still wearing the wig, but then she puts on her white queen, like <laughs> bra and shorts. I'm yes. like, yo, why are you wearing that? Just wear, do one or the other. Right, exactly. Uh, So that was a weird art direction choice, but I 100% agree with you. I am so into this relationship the entire time I'm reading this issue, which I don't think is the point, but I'm legitimately sitting there thinking in my head like, kiss, kiss, kiss. Yeah, 100%. I want them. Well, and I'll tell you why I think they kept the wig on because that's who she is now, but they put her in the skimpy outfit because she takes diamond form and then Iron Man shoots her diamond form with a light to make this great splash page i was like that's why they did it and also this is romance this is hot this is them like they're getting to it and i don't know i just love it and then we get like a sort of deeper continuity button for this issue where like forge and riri meeting in space i was like what yeah this book is wild i i love the reminder of forge's powers too. him being like yes. i built this thing i don't know what it is because i i do think everybody forgets the fact that his power is to build things it's not to be a yeah. super genius like riri williams so i love jerry dugan bringing that up very fun well Especially like he's such a great not Iron Man. He has the opposite power. Iron Man's like, I'll figure this out. And Forge is like, I did it. I don't know how it works. And I'm like, put these guys together. They're polar opposites. Yeah, great stuff. Let's move on to another great comic book, Transformers number three from Image Comics by Daniel Warren Johnson. In this issue, the Autobots and Decepticons continue to fight as Earth 
very slowly or very quickly actually figures out there is a robot fight going on. I know you said this on the live show, but the entire time I was reading this comic book, and I know I should know this from a Daniel Warren Johnson book, but I was like, how is this going so hard? Like, how am I feeling so many things reading this comic book? Because I don't care about Transformers, but this is crushing me page by page. Well, it it's doing it. I think there's a nostalgia hit I'm getting because it's drawn like they're drawn like the toys, mm-hmm. and they're drawn like you're holding them in your hands. They're at a the perspective is at a distance for a lot of it, and then close up. So it feels like you're playing with them, and they're just getting wrecked. They're just getting smashed up. They feel like it. This is such a subtle thing, but like it's drawn where you feel how like obtuse and metallic they are mm-hmm. and how they don't fit with the human world like and there's a great underlying theme there where in the last issue optimus prime steps on a deer and it's like oh no this is sad and like you see the soft roundness of the deer and all the people here and then just the hard metallic ripped up shards of all these different transformers that are getting wrecked and there's just an inherent visual conflict there and it and the fact that through all that, Optimus is like, I'll save any one human. And the Decepticons are like, I don't, I'll smash these, like anything. It's just like so much happening at once. It's like a, seeing a series of car accidents with actual cars. Yeah, it's phenomenal. You know, when we talked to Daniel Warren Johnson about this book, what he said, which oh, really resonated with me, was the idea that he would rather have a character be like, I'm going to kill you and then kill you rather than be like, I'm going to kill you. And then it takes six issues. And then finally they make a move. That's 100% what you're getting here. We're he three it. issues in. There's something that happens with one of the main human characters. I felt more for that human character reading this comic book than I have felt for any human character in any Transformers movie ever. And yeah. it's, I I don't, feel that nostalgia hit to be clear like i played with transformers when i was a kid and i think they're fun but there's something that like i've never been able to connect with them this is the most that i've ever emotionally connected i think with any transformers thing ever and it's great yeah uh, it's so good and if you haven't like if you're enjoying this comic and want to just hear daniel warren johnson talk about it and this is, isn't about the plug here, but like our interview with him is so good. Like he said so many interesting things. Like so good. worth going back and finding if you haven't listened to it. Please do. Let's move on and talk about Stranger Things, The Voyage number two from Dark Horse Comics, written by Michael Morrissey, art by Toda Ristov. I know I was a huge fan of the first issue of this book, which is basically Alien on a boat, but with one of the Demogorgons. This issue, maybe this was the first issue, but this issue, there was a character that they keep calling out named Hicks. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, you're straight up doing aliens. Like, there's no uh, subterfuge here. That's 100% what's happening. I continue to love this. I think this is, like, a very fun riff on the whole Stranger Things thing that takes it away from the kids and puts it into another part of the universe. Justin, I know you were not as sold on it. What do you think about this? I mean, I, I like it all right. It just feels like the, the characters are interesting. I like the relationships, the alien 
an aliens like connection i think is cool it just feels like it feels tangential to stranger things and it feels like every issue just ends with a shot of the demogorgon like mm -hmm. continuing to lurk and i'm like i just want to slide everything together a little bit more and maybe the, they're probably building to that but like have the demogorgon be watching them or something or like i don't know like make it more about something rather than just keeping the I demogorgon as just an alien I will agree with you that, that on this issue, I thought the first issue was a little stronger in terms of setting everybody up. This is very much like the, what's the situation? Let's figure out what the situation is issue. So I'm hopeful we're going to get a little bit more of that, like Demogorgon sneaking out, killing people in the next couple of issues. I, I assume this is a four issue series. Probably should have looked that up, but I think, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever it is, I love the concept of it, and I think Tudor Kristoff's art is very good. It actually feels aligned with the Aliens books over at Marvel, which is probably the thing that's resonating with me. So, yep. I don't know. I just want to really encourage more Stranger Things stories that are off the main Stranger Things thing. Like, let's see yeah. more of the world. It's fun. Well, and I, I thought for a second here they were going to be sailing in um, in the underneath. And that's the wrong word for it. Uh, but now like, I'm forgetting what it is. Yeah, good. not the underground. Uh, that's from Labyrinth. Yeah, that's from Upside Down. Uh, upside, down. Patrol, upside Down. In the Upside Down. And I want that to be true. Ooh, I want them to have fun. somehow slipped into the Upside Down. But they haven't yet. And mm -hmm. so like... That, that's where I want it to ha use the mythology more than I, I have it just I think what you be... want, that's a great idea. I love that idea. Maybe you want things that just like take more wild chances rather than just be alien on a boat, but stranger things. Right. I, I want something that feels more germane to the mythology that we're in. So mm -hmm. like take me there rather than just like, like you're saying, like interesting characters and then the Demogorgon is just there occasionally i'm mm -hmm. like make it give me that stranger things i want the whole flavor yeah well why don't we move on talk about birds of prey number four from dc comics written by kelly thompson art by leonardo romero the birds of prey have come to themiscara and they are trying to free well they've already freed sin kind of and are trying to get her away from a evil entity that wants to possess her while they're fighting wonder woman at the same time the action in this book is so good like uh, maybe, so good. maybe the best that dc is publishing right now i i love it and i i think the art is fantastic but I, you got to shout out Jordi Belair's colors are so sick in this. It's so, it's such a difference maker, and it makes it just it just gives it this feel that elevates everything. Because, excuse me, it's a fun story. Like it's a fun uh, action. It's like pitting the birds against Wonder Woman in a way that just it does feel earned. Every character gets some moments to shine, and it's great which is a lot of comics have great storytelling like that, but the art, like you're saying, and the action and the colors just elevate this so hard. A couple of things I want to shout out, and these are spoilery about the issue, if you don't want to know. There is a big Barda versus Wonder Woman fight that is killer. Like, the yes, way that it's great. drawn and scripted out is awesome, and it's the sort of thing that, like, feels like 
almost fan servicey in a way of who would win in a fight, Big Barda or Wonder Woman? Let's find out. But it it is so well done. It doesn't matter. And the other thing, I absolutely love the moment. So they all, of course, lose to the Amazons and get locked up in prison. <laughs> and there's a moment where Cassandra Kane is outside in her Batgirl co- costume, but they're like, you were never in prison, were you? And she's like, nope. <laughs> and gets <laughs> out of there. I was like, yes, that is that is perfect characterization on Kelly Thompson's part. Of course, Cassandra would never be caught and thrown in prison. That would not happen. So there's such a mastery and hold on these characters, including Wonder Woman in this issue. It's just overall very impressive. I love this book. The Amazing Spider-Man number 39 from Marvel, written by Zeb Wells, art by John Romita Jr. After the first strike, we are officially kicking off the Gang War storyline where the gangs of New York are all fighting for control of the underworld. Amazing Spider-Man has put together a... Amazing Spider-Man. I don't know why I said that like that. He is amazing. Alex, he's amazing. There's no denying it. Oh my gosh. He's amazing. You love him. I think he's spectacular. I find him to be Webber. (laughs) Spider-Man has put together a team to battle the gang war that over the course of this issue, he can't control and then they immediately break apart and go in their separate directions. So I don't know what the point of that was. Um, That all said... This is one of my favorite issues of Spider-Man in a very long time. Yes. Because I agree with you. It's I enjoyed yeah. this. It's very focused. It focuses on Peter Parker as Spider-Man and what's happening to him. Mm. It's not batshit insane stuff involving demons from Limbo and whatever else. It doesn't involve any mystical guys. It's just Spider-Man doing Spider-Man stuff trying to hold together a team and failing at it, which is exactly yeah. the sort of thing that Spider-Man should be doing. Um, plus you got the John Romita Jr. art and there's very, and that's a classic. So there you go. Agreed. It's, it's great art. It is, it reminds me of cla- more classic Spider-Man storytelling. The, uh, I love the She-Hulk that's in this. Mm-hmm. The She-Hulk Spidey stuff is so fun. But they're also doing a, a smart thing here by giving the villains a lot of great characterizations and finding like ways for us to root for different villains at different times, making some of them scarier, really letting the ensemble shine here. Uh, so that's good. And I didn't expect this event to be working, and it's mm-hmm. I think it's really working. I think the thing that was working about it is, again, dialing in on Spider-Man, which has been my big issue with Zeb Wells run for a bunch of issues now where it feels like it's all about other characters. It's not about Peter Parker. So putting him front and center and trying to like hold things together and do the classic, like, Oh my God, there's too many things going on at the same time. What do I do? That really works. Like that's the core of Spider-Man and that works really well here. Love Madame Mask as a villain, very into that, and bumping her up to the A-list status that she should be at anyway, I think is great. Um, Like John Romita Jr.'s art in here, of course, I think he draws a She-Hulk, which I think is very fun. Of A lot of people don't draw her like wearing clothes over her clothes, and that's how John Romita Jr. draws her, that like... 
she has a costume and all this bulk under her suit and it's very very fun to see her that way so really enjoyed that the only quibble that i have is all of new york yeah. literally seems to be on fire the entire time which i'm like true that's that's a lot I I don't know if that's happening, but okay. it's stressing you out because you I know we've pinpointed our area on the gang war map, and I yes. you're not happy with my, your boss. My problem is like I know this is a stupid thing to say out loud, but I don't know how a gang war works. Like my impression of a gang war is, hey, we're gonna take your turf, and that there's actual business stuff involved because we have to push drugs and do crime and whatever else. But this literally seems like just a gang war where it's just a battle yes we have taken over brooklyn or the upper east side or whatever well i do think it's crazy where they're like there i was in manhattan today and i'm reading this book i'm like oh i would have encountered of absolute battle on like (laughs) on broadway between mr negative and hammerhead for i'm like what what are these guys doing and also (laughs) So it is a little nonsense. There's definitely that. But I think, especially when it feels like they leave to go fight someone and then someone just takes their territory. Yeah. I don't know. I The only other thing that I'll say on a more positive bent, I love the focus on Beetle here. I think that's good. The Beetle-Tombstone relationship is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I love dialing in on that. So this is the most I've enjoyed Amazing Spider-Man in a really long time. So very happy about that. And I would say hail, hail Bumbler, who owns uh, my part of Brooklyn. So yeah. shouts to Bumbler, that is my <laughs> gang. My what, gang. What boss. are you doing? What have you been doing for Bumbler lately? For Bumbler, um, I, let me be honest. I actually don't know who Bumbler is. I feel like that's a villain I haven't been exposed a lot uh-huh. to. So looking forward to shake Bumbler's hand. <laughs> and the name Bumbler sounds like he's a Kramer from Seinfeld. I feel gang I'm picturing Mister Bean personally. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Mr. B, Bumbler. He's like really the good. Mr. B of crime. Creep Show holiday special from Image Comics, written by Danielle Kraus and James Asmus, art by Jonathan Wayshack and Letizia Cadenici. This is, of course, to holiday style tales of the classic Creep Show fashion. Creep Show, I just want to say, I don't know why this was driven home for me with this issue, but is wild to me. Because I expect like a Twilight Zone or Tales from the Crypt style twist. Mm. But the Creep Show twist is always like, oh, what if everybody died? <laughs> yeah. And it's wild. But uh, what, what if they got murdered harder than you thought? <laughs> yes. And twist? Th- that's fine. Uh, I like the second story in particular. Always a fan of what James Asmus is doing. Shouts to James, our guy James. Letizia Cadenici's art is so good. So I like that story in particular. But what did you think about this one? I like both of these stories. I think the art really matched the tone of each story. And just fun, like very straight over the plate horror genre in both of them. Uh, I like that the, the fact that they're pairing really different tonally they're pairing tonally different stories together in these issues and i hope it continues like i i, I want to keep reading this all year long not just in the halloween ish season exactly well it's a holiday special so there you go poison ivy number 17 from dc comics written by g willow wilson art by luana vecchio uh poison ivy has been dealing with a evil 
spore infection that is slowly taking over Gotham City. She's tried to shut that down in this issue. Different spores than Beast World. A lot of rival spore action. I mean, I love this series, and I love how they're expanding the cast and the mythology here. The interaction between Poison Ivy and Croc is great. Also, they're friends. As much as I list, miss uh, Mauricio Takara on the art, Luana Vecchio is a great sub in for this title. Agree. Um, another great issue of this book. Agree. I love the the relationship stuff going on between Harley and uh, the woman from HR (laughs) is so fun. And I love that. And I love the confidence of the writing where it's like, don't worry, we're going to deal with that later. And then for the second half of the issue, it's just Poison Ivy, like hang with Croc, deal with Grundy and being like, "Uh oh, this thing keeps getting worse. Mm -hmm. It's just such a confidently well paced story from issue one. Great read. Every issue's been great for this. So good. Let's move on and talk about Daredevil number four from Marvel, written by Saladin Ahmed, art by Jermaine Peralta, subbing in for Aaron Cooter here. So Daredevil by day is a priest. By night, he's Daredevil. But in this issue, he's also by day Daredevil. And once again, he is clashing with Bullseye for the first time in his new continuity. What'd you think about this issue, Justin? Uh, it's interesting. This new flavor of Daredevil. So much of Daredevil has been like, like ah, everything. I walk a dark path. Everything in my life is bad. But we haven't ever seen a ton of Daredevil being like, I hate my job. And so much of this run is like Daredevil being like, I hate doing this. Be a priest is hard too. I'm too busy. It feels like there's just a like a more everyday bummer mm. established on Daredevil. So like, I don't know. That's an interesting tone. And I talked about this earlier on. It's rare when a comic really wants us to believe in the religious underpinnings that are in the book. And this comic is doing that in a way that I'm like, I don't quite know if that's working for me. This is not quite working for me. I mean, I I, I don't, it's still well done. I mean, Saladin Ahmed, good writer, Jermaine Peralta, I think a very detailed artist. I prefer Aaron Cooter. Aaron Cooter is one of my favorite working artists today. So I was certainly missing that a little bit. But there's a lot of stuff that happens to this issue that I was not 100% on board with. I love the dichotomy that was presented and finally crisped in with the last issue of Daredevil being essentially angel by day, devil by night. Great concept. I think that's really Mm. smart. Here, they keep going with like, no, no, now he's Daredevil all the time. He just doesn't want to be a priest. And I understand there's a breaking point coming there, but I feel like you just introduced the concept, play with that, set that in, really deal with that tension versus him just ignoring his priestly duties. And then, spoiler for the issue, but as of last issue, we suspected that Ben Urich was infested with some sort of demon, they solve that this issue and that's very quick that it's the sort of thing that like with daredevil it's almost converse to a lot of other things where i want to see similar to batman things just get worse and worse with him all the time but i want to see that slow simmering boil to where things explode and 
they're almost working through it too quickly and ignoring things that I think should be a little more palpable in the book. Well, I agree because I want to explore this a little bit more because is the idea here that, I mean, Daredevil was just in hell. So right. is it then he, then he emerged and he's a priest? He's always been Catholic. Now he's like more Catholic. Is the idea here that these demons are infesting people that are friends with Daredevil? Is it just a coincidence? And his power set has maybe been influenced by his belief system, which I think is another interesting idea. Like there's potential interesting ideas on the table here. But like I said, there's a sort of a malaise over this book in general where everyone feels like it's a little bit hard to do everything. Mm -hmm. And I just want something to pop a little bit out and have a little bit of a story underpinning that gets us to um, real clarity on what's happening. And I also feel like maybe there needs to be a connection between his day life and nightlife that we're getting a little bit of that, but it feels like he's off doing these superhero type things at night as daredevil and it's not quite connecting back to his day life as a priest so i don't know i like this team curious to see where it goes but it's not quite working for me yet let's talk about blood commandment number two from image comics by sisman kodransky this is following a vampire who was just trying to raise his boy and vampires keep coming mm. for him I love Sisman Kondratsky's art. It's so detailed. It feels like a natural extension of the Top Cow style in a certain way. Yeah. Ooh, interesting. Um, almost like Jermaine Peralta, as we were talking about in the last book. It's a little more detailed and a little more shaded there. But uh, good stuff there. I enjoyed the second issue. What did you think about it? Yeah, I agree with you. Like, I like the art, just uh, the the detail, the style is really nice. Also, the way it goes from sort of panels, tighter paneling into like wider splash pages, I think is really nice. It feels like there's a flow to it, which is, you know, you don't always get in a lot of uh, different, especially comic book artists that are writing their own material. Uh, the story is interesting and, and uh, dark. I don't quite it's hard to put all the pieces together all the time similar to something epic uh which uh, simon's other book which we really liked sort of like sort of went up and down a little bit but very much that thing of like oh i don't quite know what's happening oh i like this what's happening like oh you lost me a little bit there oh i like this again and that i think that's a fine narrative flow and, and this book is definitely hitting that as well yeah i agree i mostly it's some really really interesting images and some very cool looking vampire fights throughout and a little bit of a hard time focusing on the emotional hook of this issue versus the first issue but i don't know I, i'm still into it and curious to read the third one shazam number six from dc comics written by mark wade art by dan mora in this issue the captain which is the new name of Shazam, is mm. fighting back against the gods that give him his powers. Um, this, this is just a Goofmatron 2000 is what's going on here. There's some goofy bits throughout. I'm having a nice time. Having a, and I think that's a good way of saying it. Like Mark Waid is just balanced. It's one of the most well-balanced comics that's coming out where it's like superhero action, goofy uh, gags. 
and then some continuity underpinnings to give it all like a frame to live in the DC universe with. So it's just great workman like comic book that feels just like a light fun read. Yeah. And you've also, I mean, you've got Dan Moore's art. How could you be mad at a dinosaur dressed up as crime master? That's very fun. The whole thing that happens with the Shazam family is fun. I don't know if the solution to the problem with the gods completely makes sense or works, mm. but at the same time, I had a good time reading it and I will continue to read this book. It's just a, like you said, it feels like a really good mainstream all ages book, which we don't get a yeah. lot and it's fun. It's goof. It feels like all the characters are kids. Like the whole thing with the captain is that it's a kid who becomes this man superhero, but it feels like all the characters in this are also secretly kids. They all behave like kids. And that's a fun lay on for the first Shazam. Fantastic Four, number 14 from Marvel, written by Ryan North, art by Ivan Fiorello. The kids, speaking of kids, from the Fantastic Four are supposed to come back to reality after a year. Unfortunately, a bunch of female supervillains are doing construction on the site instead, so the Fantastic Four clashes with them. Another good, solid issue of this book that I think really dives into the stuff that Ryan North likes in particular, which is interesting science stuff, in this case, predictive algorithms and other things like that. Um, so another smart, done-in-one concept that ends in a very sad place, to mildly spoil it. 100%. Like, as a man who continues to be tripping balls, like, it was such a harsh uh, buzzkill at the end, but in an emotional way that I enjoyed... This book is just such a marketplace of ideas. There are so many great ideas on display in every issue of this that Ryan North is putting there. This issue continues that. I will say I feel like the Fantastic Four were pretty harsh in there. I know he's like a villain and like doing a a worldwide scheme, but they literally are just like, yeah, well, we just burned your whole business down. I was like, yo, okay. <laughs> Mr. Fantastic, not fucking around for a change. Yeah. I'm very curious to see where this is going to go after the end of this issue in particular and what's going to happen next with the title. I also kind of love having a crest of the action in issue number 14. You usually expect it at 12 yeah. or 24 or 25 or something like that. So interested to see where it goes. Yeah. The emotional hit at the end is surprising here, but it really does hit. Kill Your Darlings, number three, from Image Comics, written by Ethan S. Parker and Griffin Sheridan, art by Robert Quinn. Um, I feel like, did we read this before? We did. We did read this before and reviewed it. Oh, great. Uh, and we got an advance of it, I believe. Ah, there we go. Uh, well, we can talk about it now. They are bringing forward a big villain for the series. It seems like we are having our main character who has been aged up is traveling back to the magical land of her youth, bringing her friend with her. And that friend, spoilers, gets corrupted by the ancient evil has taken over this land. I don't think we mentioned that in our advanced review, but man, I love this. I think the art is great. I think... This emotional twist here by pitting the friend against her is absolutely perfect. You know, when we interviewed this team on the live show, they talked a little bit about being inspired by Donnie Cates 
this feels like a very Debbie mm. Gates twist here. Yes. Great stuff. Well, it's hard to do like the push pull between like comedy and uh, real emotionally driven drama. And this book just does a great job of that. It, it helped that it helps that the concept is sort of built around that. But they, they continue at every issue and astute listeners can compare our advanced review with this review and see um, who's bullshit and who's not. Oh, there you go. Sacrificers. It was Pete. A Sacrificers number five. Yeah. <laughs> written by, it was not Pete. Written by Rick Remender, art by Max Fiumora. So this takes place in a world where we have a bunch of people who are taken to be sacrificers, sacrifices for the gods. It turns out the gods drink joy. They basically, they suck the joy out of children and they drink them in order to stay young. We've had... This character is the daughter of one of the main gods who has flown off and is trying to save these children and change what's going on with the gods. I said this with the last issue, like, man, Rick Remender is my Lucy with the football because every issue I'm like, oh, here we go. Hope. Oh, no, no hope. Okay. (laughs) All right. There's a lesson, perhaps, about Rick Remender's worldview in there that maybe you could uh, to take to heart. But this is still amazing. I like, I love this okay. book. It the art is really great. This is a, a sort of a deeper mythological issue uh, compared to the others that we our sort of main character. We spend a little bit less time with, but hard introduction to the villain and great potential conflict set up and tragic things happening so i every issue of this book and i think this is a honestly a wonderful place for a comic to be i don't know where we're going next like i don't know yeah. what is from going issue on. one it's yeah. been like totally like i haven't been able to predict what's happening but i like every issue and where it takes us yeah and to your point max Vora's designs of these characters are beautiful one of the things that we get in this issue is we find out the person who juices the kids is also a bird person, like the main character that we've been following, yes, which feels big... like an important detail that we're going to find out more about. Um, man, this is so dark and so sad, and I love reading it. I don't know why. You think he's going to be like a bird uncle? Oh, Bird Uncle. I love a good Bunkle? Bunkle. You got a Bunkle sitch. It's a Bunkle sitch. 100%. The Midnight Show, number three, from Dark Horse Comics, written by Cullen Bud, art by Brideheart. Speaking of dark books, this is about a old-school monster movie that has got absolutely wild and released all the old monsters onto a small town who have proceeded to murder most of our main characters in graphic ways. We talked, yeah. We talked a lot, uh, a lot about with the last issue about how shockingly hard this went with killing characters that we were all in on. That continues in this issue, um, and uh, shouts out to it for doing that. Yeah, I think this is great. I think there's a central mystery here that we have. We don't quite know why everything's happening, or we've been set up to think it's a certain way. I have a prediction. Uh, we have our like all the townspeople like our young characters who are just wandering around and they're riding with this Van Helsing character and there's a great like sort of preamble at the beginning of this uh, uh, cold open that shows the conflict from the movie 
with uh, Dracula fighting Van Helsing. And there's this moment where he gets knocked down. And he's looking at the blood that Dracula is about to drink to become the god of monsters, mm-hmm. the puppeteer of all the other monsters. I think the Van Helsing Ooh. is the god of monsters and is taking control. If you read this issue with that in mind, it's all a farce that this this guy is running to try to get to the ultimate power here. So that's what I think is happening. And we're going to get a fun, great twist next issue. I love that idea. Whatever happens, though, this is one of the best books that I think Colin Bond has ever written. I am having such a blast reading this. And I think a lot of that is up to Brian Hurt's art that feels a little bit like Erica Henderson's art, but maybe not Mm. quite as cartoony, but very fun, very bloody, very gruesome. This is a great horror book. I'm having a blast reading this. Cullen Bunn, you got it done. The Avengers, number eight from Marvel, written by Jed McKay, art by C.F. Villa. The Avengers are under attack on two fronts, one in their dreams by Nightmare. Been there. Who just wants some respect, you know? And the other is the team from the Timeless issue that came out last year that I'm forgetting the name of. They are, like, uh, working for King Arthur or something? I don't know. Uh, Yes, the Twilight Court? There you go. Is that what you mean? Um, Yes. And uh, King Arthur is under wraps in like some metal. And there's like some relationship stuff happening here. They remind me of the Pantheon from your classic Mm -hmm. Peter David uh, Incredible Hulk run many years ago. You're a McKay head. What do you think about this, Justin? Uh, I like it. This Avengers run, we're eight issues in. Don't you dare. I don't know. I saw that neck tilt. Huh. You didn't you didn't see it, but you, I bet you heard it. Okay. Listeners. Uh the there's just so much happening. We're so deep down the story in a way that that I like. I like the way Thor solves some problems here. Mm-hmm. And I uh the Vision Scarlet Witch stuff I thought was good. Uh, I'm on board. I love the nightmare stuff. I wish it was just that because mm. the whole Twilight Court, it's its too much going on at all times in this book. There's a lot going on. Yeah. And this, this is a corollary thing. I mean, this almost goes back to what we were talking about with Titan's Beast World a little bit. But there's a bit of publishing thing in terms of we had last year's issue of timeless come out in i want to say december where it teased the twilight court and kang and everything that was going on we're a year past that and we're finally getting maybe to it a little bit that's too much time like well here's the thing anytime you go to court it takes a while to get to your actual trial absolutely uh, that just struck me when I, I looked ahead to there's a new issue of Timeless. There's Timeless 2023. Number one is coming out towards the end of the month, which is a totally different story by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. And it's like, stop previewing things when you haven't finished the previous thing that you previewed. Like, I don't wow. need previews. Just finish finish a story is, I guess, what I'm saying. And... I love the idea of Nightmare. I love the idea of the Avengers being trapped in their dreams, but the Twilight Court being like, we're all standing here on different levels and threatening you is, 
I don't know. I, I don't have any connection to it. It feels very much like whatever that team was that menaced them in the first arc that I'm forgetting the name of, the Immortal City and other things. The Impossible City, Alex? Is oh, that what I'm you so mean? Sorry. Which is now the Avengers headquarters? Um, Get to that! I want to see that! Like, what are they're living in a city. What does that mean? I don't know. And I know what you're thinking, Alex. Justin, name the name of the team that was that was fighting the Avengers uh, last issue. And yeah, I, we, I wish you would say it because I could easily <laughs> name it. Sure. And totally. And I don't no need to prompt if, you. You know what it is. You don't need to prompt me. I know no, what it is. You don't need to ask me. Aware. And those of you watching the video know that there's different shades of light hitting my face because there are different windows being opened and closed <laughs> on my laptop. But that doesn't mean I'm Googling what the Ashen Combine is because I know who the, uh, Ashen the Ashen Combine, Combine. There we go. Yes, we all know that. We love the Ashen Combine. We're all big fans. <sighs> Petrol. I like this. This is good. McKay for life. This sucks. I hope you die. Petrol head number. No, it's fine. You mean me? Yeah, I mean you personally. No, this is fine. I, I like the art. Petrol head number two from Image <laughs> Comics, written by Rob Williams, art by Pi Par. Is that correct? Did I write that correctly? Uh, only time will tell. I guess yes, we'll find Pi out. Par. This is basically Fast and the Furious meets Real Steel as a robot takes oh. a young girl and her father to safety in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. There's a little bit of Mad Max going on there as well. I love the first issue of this. The second issue also doesn't disappoint. I think the character designs are great. I think the action is propulsive. And there's a lot of emotional stuff that goes on here as well that I won't necessarily spoil, but I really like this issue. I agree. The art's fantastic. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, Futurama, Fujira, Futurama, Futurama, uh, where Petrol Head is uh, sort of a bit of a bender character at different yeah. points. There's a lot of fun happening here as well with uh, Cockney accents. This is a nice, nice package of different ideas with great art to sh to showcase. Yeah, absolutely. It's very propulsive throughout, which I appreciate it. So if you're looking for a good action book with a bunch of cheeky humor, I think this is a good one to check out. The Space Between, number two from Boob Studios, written by Karina Becco, art by Danny Luckert. I was very curious to check this one out based on our discussion of the first issue. This was a very titanic love story of a upstairs-downstairs couple mm. who got together and ultimately ended up changing their entire space station. We questioned why this was an ongoing series, and now we find out in the second issue. So what did you think about this one? It feels it feels like a, just a totally new story. Same space station, different characters dealing with uh, pot, the dangers of populism and exploiting different uh, social strata to for political gain. Which I like that topic. It it is strange that these issues connect because they connect very very vaguely. Mm -hmm. uh, but I like both of the stories. And again. What's going to happen in the third issue? Are we just going to do new stuff again? I don't know. It's an interesting idea. I, I appreciate the fact that this is a title taking chances, which is something that comic yeah. books don't do. So it, telling a overarching story of a society is kind of fascinating. I think the art is really solid throughout. There's good characterizations. It's a lot of talking, so get used to that. But it feels in line with like, 
what Isaac Asimov's foundation actually was. Uh, not the that's a great series, call, but that's a great connect. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing where it's like, what would a society be like? Let's follow it as it goes. So, yeah, I appreciate that. We don't get a lot of straight sci-fi anymore. X-Men number 29 from Marvel, written by Jerry Dugan, art by Juan Casara. In this issue, we are meeting Doom's X-Men. Basically, Dr. Doom decided as soon as Krakoa got started, nope, I'm going to start my own X-Men and have my own team. We get to see the genesis of that, as well as Wolverine and Kitty Pride fighting against it. Man, this issue is so good. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, Wangasara's art is like next level with the character designs. I think not to co- contrast it with something else, but comparing it to like the Ash and Combine or the Twilight Court or anything like that, these feel like instantly iconic mutant characters that actually wow that I was very impressed by. The opening sequence is so much fun where Dr. Doom calls in in the middle of the Professor X's initial announcement of Krakoa and he interrupts it with the punchline of Magneto being just like, just block him and move on. Great. So funny. Also, Doom's Doom's in like a bathrobe calling (laughs) from like a a funny helmet. I was like, this is crazy. This whole issue is so good. And I'm like, is this part of this event? This feels like such a a time capsule from something absolutely unrelated. Well, just to mention about that, I've gotten, this is a stupid thing to say out loud, but I've gotten very into subscribing to newsletters from people. Mm. And I've subscribed to Jerry Dugan's newsletter. And he mentioned in his newsletter, the idea of this issue was like, he had an idea for Doom's X-Men that he just could not let go. And given they're wrapping up the Krakoa era, he's like, all right, I'm just going to do that here. So this is 100% that, and I I love that he did that. It reminds me a lot of what Jonathan Hickman used to do when he he was doing the Avengers, doing both titles. And it would just be like, this issue is like Hawkeye and (laughs) uh, like Sunspot or some random other Avenger, and they're going to go fly to... uh, uh, like Russia and fights of random people and then fly back home or whatever. And it was like, ah, oh, cool. I don't know how this relates to the story you're trying to tell or whatever. <laughs> and, and like, I like that. Wolverine gets his ass handed to him in a way we don't usually see. He gets beat up and he's absolutely ineffective the entire time. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And then just a great, it's such a great Doctor Doom issue. I do like the idea that, yeah, Latveria has X-Men. Great. They're totally beholden to him. There's some mystery here with some of them. Mm-hmm. It ends at a place where they're like, I guess we're friends with him. Sort of. <laughs> and there's a great kickoff for we're heading into Rise of X and Powers of X, which are going to yeah. be the end of the Krakoa era. And there's a great tease here, which is horrifying. So overall, yeah. really good issue. Very fun. Last but not least, Midlife or How to Hero at 50, number three from Image Comics, written by Brian Bucciolato, art by Stefano Simeone. This is following a character who has discovered that he is fireproof and also cannot control fire, but he can move fire out of his way, and he is using that to try his hand at being a sort of superhero. A lot of this issue is taken up with his friends and family dealing with that fact. I love how relatively realistic this is and they're not letting that go 
This is a very smartly written series that I'm very much enjoying. It's one of the best just superhero origin stories where the character is good at being a hero, is a hero, but also messes up and is also not confident. It reminds me of like early Miles Morales stuff and like really establishing a hero that we don't understand what the power set is and the the situation around them. There's a villain here that is like sort of intimidating, but also sort of goofy and we're left in a place that I, I really like. This is one of my favorite brand new superhero series on mm. the stands. I think you called out Unbreakable with the first issue, and this really yes. feels like not a straight up comedy, but a more comedic extension of that. It, it could exist 100% in the same world because you have a, a hero with relatively realistic power set. And I don't know, I just love how they're dealing with this. I love how... He's telling his wife in this issue, and what does that mean? And what is that conversation like? He's dealing with the fact that he's like, I can go into fires, but the FBI agents say, oh, you can control fire? And he's like, no, I can't do yeah. that. It's, it's nice, and giving him limits, I think, is so smart and so interesting. So really enjoying the yeah. series. Also, shout out to Stefano Simeon's art, which feels cartoony but not overly much so um great stuff really good and that is really it fun. for the stack if you'd like to support us a podcast uh support all of our podcasts patreon.com slash comic club also we do a live show every tuesday night at 7 p.m to facebook and youtube come back out we love to chat chat with you about comic books apple spotify android or the, the app of your choice to subscribe listen and follow the show at comic book live on twitter as slash x at comic book live on tiktok and instagram comic book club live.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, we'll see you at the comic book club. Time to eat some more mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs>